Nearly every church eats bread and drinks either wine or grape juice to remember Jesus' death in communion. And yet, while nearly every church practices communion, the details about how and why we practice it have generated endless questions. What is communion's theological significance? How often should we celebrate it? Should we use leavened or unleavened bread? Should we use wine or grape juice? Should we drink from one cup or many? And the recent pandemic created all new questions. Should we try to celebrate communion remotely? Communion seems to attract theological controversy, which is sad because the truths that are displayed in communion speak of believers' unity and our commonality because we all have a share in the death of Christ. So as a local church, we want communion to be a practice that unifies us, not which divides us. We also want to practice communion in a God-honoring way because, as we've seen recently in 1 Timothy, how the local church conducts itself really matters because the local church is the household of God, the pillar and foundation of the truth in our community. So what we do matters, including how we practice communion. And today we're going to talk about our understanding and observance of communion as we look at the most detailed biblical passage on this subject, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. If you've got a Bible, please turn there. And we're going to see three points this morning. First, disunity and selfishness pervert the gatherings of the local church and corrupt its celebration of communion. Second, communion is something that Jesus has commanded the church to regularly observe, which has profound significance. And third, communion is a holy and solemn event that we can participate in only with self-examination. Let's start with our first point. Disunity and selfishness pervert the gatherings of the local church and corrupt our communion. Begin reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church about the times when it comes together, when it assembles for worship. The book of Hebrews tells us why a church gathers for worship in Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Life is hard, and the days are evil. We need to be built up, and we need to be stirred up to live the, the life that Christ has called us to, a love marked by love and obedient works. And God has given believers the local church to help stir us up to live this life. And the church does that by teaching the truth. And by giving us a place to use our spiritual gifts to serve other people. By giving us a community of other people alongside whom we live our lives. This is God's design for how the local church equips each of us to meet the challenges of life. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 is that when the Corinthians gather together for worship, it's not helping anybody. Instead, it's harming everybody. What a terrible indictment. How can this be? How can a church's gatherings prove harmful? Well, if a church falls away from the gospel into false teaching, that's one way its gatherings could be harmful. Pointing people to a false hope and away from Christ, pushing them towards sin and judgment. 
But that's not what's happening in Corinth. The issue here isn't really false teaching. Rather, it's how the church is living and conducting itself. See, friends, a church can deny the gospel not just by its words, but also by its deeds. Perhaps there's truth in the pulpit, but the church doesn't live it out. Or it tolerates sin, or it adopts values and practices that are contrary to the gospel. That's what's happening in Corinth. The church's conduct is undermining the gospel. In verse 18, Paul says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now you might remember from our study in 1 Corinthians a while ago, this is an understatement. The Corinthian church is thoroughly divided. It's divided about doctrine, about sexual ethics, about how Christians should deal with the unbelieving world. The Corinthian church doesn't agree about much at all. Paul knows that. It's totally divided. That's one of the main reasons he's writing this book. So why does Paul say that he has heard the Corinthians are divided and he believes it in part? Because what Paul's saying here is he's heard about yet another reason that this church is divided. And he is inclined to believe this report. And this new division that he has just heard about is so contrary to the gospel. It is so corrosive to the truth and meaning of Jesus' death. The presence of this division has perverted the church's gatherings into blasphemy. But before Paul describes what this blasphemous division is, first he makes this interesting statement in verse 19. He says, For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Unity is very important for Christians. Back in chapter 1, Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you all be united in the same mind. Unity is critically important for a church. But as important as unity is, it's not ultimate. A few years ago, I was talking to a church leader, and he was facing a pretty unpleasant situation. Biblically, it was very straightforward, but he knew that if his church followed the Bible, then uh, a number of the church's members were going to leave. And so we were talking, and he was trying to justify to me why he wanted to disobey the Bible. And he said, well, we've got to tolerate sin, Ben, because the job of the elders is to keep the church family together. He thought unity was the be-all, end-all. But it's not. Because listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Yes, we must be eager to maintain our unity, but the unity that we maintain is not unity for unity's sake. It is not the unity of a tight-knit group of close friends. It is not the unity of a country club. Friends, we have unity because we confess a common Lord and a common faith. Our unity is the result of our common allegiance to Jesus. But Paul says in verse 19, some divisions are inevitable because sometimes people in the church are not genuine. They don't really believe or live what they claim to. And occasions will arise where these people will expose their falsity. 
either by unrepentantly embracing false doctrine or some sinful lifestyle, they depart from our common gospel foundation. And we see examples of this in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 5, there is a church member who is living in outrageous sexual sin. And Paul says, put him out of the church because his conduct is destroying the church's gospel witness. In chapter 15, Paul says, the church must separate from false teachers who are denying the resurrection. Friends, when people who had claimed to hold to our common foundation show that they don't, divisions will naturally form. And when that happens, it's sad. But the truth is, these divisions show that we never really had unity with these folks to begin with. And when these kinds of divisions form, the church must be willing to sacrifice our superficial unity with these people who depart from the truth, and we must be willing to separate from them. Because if we do otherwise, if we try to figure out some compromise with them, what that's going to do is it's going to undermine and destroy our gospel witness. And so division is sometimes necessary because the local church is the household of God. It is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So we've got to stand, first and foremost, for Christ and His Word. But the Corinthian church is dealing with an outrageous sin, which is the sort of thing that reveals that some of the people in the church who claim to know Jesus really don't. And now Paul's going to tell us what they're up to. Look at verse 20. Here's the, here's the issue. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul is incensed by the way the Corinthian church is practicing communion, the Lord's Supper. He says to them, you might call what you're doing the Lord's Supper, but it isn't because what you're doing has got nothing to do with Jesus. Or what are they doing? To understand the sin here, we've got to understand some background about the gatherings of the church in the first century. First, understand that when the church met, it would not have had its own building. It would have met in probably the biggest house owned by any church member. Acts 18 tells us the Corinthian church met in a house. Second, when the church met, it didn't just meet for one hour on Sunday morning. The church meetings seemed to have started in the middle of the day, and often they went all night. And not everyone would be there right at the start, because in the ancient Greco-Roman world, people didn't have Sundays off. Third, when the church assembled, it did more than just sing and hear a sermon. Every time the church gathered, it celebrated communion. And beyond taking communion, the early church also ate a large meal called the Love Feast. This was a time for the whole church to get together, rich and poor alike, and share one community meal. And this testified to the church's unity, and it also acted as a benevolence ministry. The Love Feast ensured that church members who could not afford to eat were fed by those who could afford to feed them. And communion seems to have been observed as part of the love feast. All right, now, let's use our imaginations, and I'm going to try and paint to you a picture of what the Corinthian sin is. Sunday comes around. It's the Lord's Day. It's the day for worship, and the service will take place in a big house. Early in the day, the first church members arrive. And who are they? Well, they're the rich. Uh, they don't have to work. 
And they come hungry because, after all, a big part of the service has to do with food. So they arrive, and they are seated in the dining room. A number of ancient Corinthian mansions have been excavated. And we, what we know from these excavations is that the biggest houses had a dining room that could comfortably seat nine people. We also know from ancient literature of the day that sitting in the dining room was having a position of honor. And 1 Corinthians, throughout the whole book, we see that the Corinthian church is totally overwhelmed by the values and attitudes of the unbelieving world. And so it's very natural to think that this church thought that was appropriate. Oh, you're the rich members? Oh, here's the seat of honor for you. So they show up, they're hungry, they start eating, they start drinking, they don't wait for anybody else, they just dig in. Hours go by. Eventually the workday ends, and the working class members start coming to church. When they get there, the dining room is full. They don't get the seats of honor, and the food is mostly gone. They're shown into a large living room that could seat about 50 people, and they get the leftovers. And they eat them right then and there because they know what will happen if they wait. The food's going to be all gone. But all of the church is not yet assembled because about a third of the people that lived in ancient Corinth were slaves. And eventually the slaves got to go to church. And by the time they showed up, they're lucky if they can even get in the house and there's nothing left for them. So what should have been a meal displaying the unity, love, and equality of the church's members has become one more opportunity for the rich to gorge themselves and for the poor who were supposed to benefit from this benevolence, they go hungry again. And they dare call this the Lord's Supper? Paul will have none of it. This doesn't reflect Jesus. It shows contempt for his church and his gospel. God the Son was so kind and gracious and loving, he humbled himself to come to earth, to live as a man, to die on a cross. Friends, Philippians 2 tells us that is the mindset that we should have. A mindset of self-sacrificing love and generosity and deference for others. The church has to remember we are all equal at the foot of the cross because we're all sinners in desperate need of God's grace. But the Corinthian feast reflects none of this. It's selfish. Scarf down what you can get your hands on before anybody else gets it. And it reflects the value system of the world. The rich matter, they benefit, the poor don't. Who you are out there determines how we see you in here. Whether you get a good seat, whether you even get a drink, whether you even feel like you're really part of the body. This denies our essential equality as believers. And imagine being a poor believer in this situation. You go to church, how do you feel when you leave? You've been ground into the dirt once again, but this time by the people who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters. Paul says it's awful when the Corinthian church assembled for this wicked meal, which is not communion, because this feast opposes the gospel. It contradicts the love and truth about Christ. And this sin reminds us of some fundamental truths that must shape us as a church. Number one, friends, the church is different than the world. One of the biggest themes in 1 Corinthians is the local church has to keep the world's attitudes, values, and methods out of the church. We've got to be shaped by the gospel here. Christ died for sinners. So no matter who you are or what your background is, you've got value in God's sight. You can be transformed and forgiven. 
We are all equal because we are all dependent on God's grace. There is no ground for boasting and arrogance and prejudice and worldly elitism and partiality must not be practiced here. Number two, we've got to remember that the church isn't all about me and it's not all about you. Selfishness was a huge problem in the ancient church. It still is today. And I think selfishness really manifests itself in two ways in churches. First, people sometimes like to assert themselves, jockeying for titles and positions and influence, trying to figure out how their preferences are the ones that are reflected on Sunday morning. This is still a common thing. And it's often, but not always, practiced by the rich. A good buddy of mine recently planted a church. And he's got a member in this church who is very spiritually immature, but who's also got a lot of money. And this guy wrote a big check to the church, and now he thinks that because he's done that, he gets to set the agenda for what the church is going to do. Friends, that's not how it works. The spiritually qualified leaders set the agenda, not the guy with the biggest checkbook. Amen? Second, people can be selfish in the church, and I think we see this all the time, by always taking and never giving. This is very common today. People come to church and they expect benefits. I want services. I want child care. I want to be listened to. I want to be counseled. I want to enjoy the benefits of the community. But when the time comes to pitch in and serve or give, well, they're absent again. That's also selfishness. And Paul says selfishness corrupts and perverts the church. The local church is not to be marked by self, it's to be marked by love. Over and over again, 1 John tells us real Christians love the brothers. Jesus said in John 13, By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now what's love? It's sacrificially giving of ourselves to benefit somebody else. And many of us show love through service and hospitality in this church. And if that's you, I want to say, excel still further. But friends, if we don't want to repeat the Corinthian error, we've got to be vigilant to keep the values of the world out of the church. We need to cultivate personal humility. And we all need to practice loving service and regard for others. We've got to treat everybody else the same no matter who they are. Because when we gather together, we've got to reflect the gospel. We don't want to contradict it. All right, we come now to our second point, which is that communion is something Jesus has commanded the church to regularly observe and that it's got great significance. So the Corinthians have taken the Lord's Supper and they've perverted it into blasphemy and Paul rebukes them, but he doesn't just leave it there. Now he rebuilds their understanding of the Lord's Supper and he does that by pointing them back to the origins of communion. Verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul says, you know better than what you've been doing. This isn't what I taught you, and it's not what Jesus taught me. But the Corinthians have departed from what they once knew. So Paul reminds them, go back to what I taught you. Verse 23, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, and we'll stop there. The Lord's Supper was first celebrated on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, the night he was betrayed by Judas. The Gospels tell us that Jesus and his disciples were observing the Passover, a Jewish holiday that's celebrated with a unique feast. At this feast, different foods are eaten and different cups of wine are drunk, and these objects have symbolic meanings that 
remind the Jews that God supernaturally delivered them from slavery in Egypt with a series of plagues. And God told Israel the final plague would pass over them if they sheltered in a house covered with the blood of a sacrificed lamb. Well, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus and his disciples ate this symbolic Passover meal. But as they did, Jesus broke with tradition. Verse 23, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus took bread, he broke it, he thanked God for supplying it, and then he distributed it. None of that would have been surprising to the disciples. What was surprising is the instruction that Jesus gives or the interpretation he gives of these actions. He says, this bread is my body. The meaning of this sentence is one of the biggest controversies in the history of Christianity. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Jesus meant this in an extremely literal way, that he supernaturally transformed the essence of the bread into his literal flesh and the wine into his own blood. And Catholics teach that at the Last Supper and every Mass since, Jesus re-sacrifices his body and blood, which is then literally consumed by those who take communion. And that by doing so, the people who take communion receive God's saving grace. The Lutheran Church holds to a very similar view. But these interpretations put far too much weight on Jesus' word is, when he said, this is my body. The Greek verb here often explains the correspondence of a symbol to that which it refers to. So this could legitimately mean, this represents my body. Well, which interpretation should we take? Is the bread Jesus' body, or does it represent Jesus' body? Well, cannibalism, eating human flesh, was contrary to the Mosaic law, and so was drinking blood of any type. And yet Jesus repeatedly insisted that he perfectly fulfilled the law. Did he sin by eating the bread and drinking the cup? Did he lead the disciples into sin by passing the elements to them? If you hold to the Catholic or Lutheran view, this is a big problem. Here's another problem. Is Jesus truly human? Human bodies stay in one place at one time. If the bread actually becomes Jesus' human body, every place and every time communion is celebrated, how can Jesus' body be truly human? Moreover, 1 Peter 3 says, Christ suffered for sins once for all. Jesus' body and blood are not perpetually re-sacrificed at each celebration of communion. Jesus was sacrificed only once 2,000 years ago at Calvary. So for all these reasons and, and others, we should reject the Catholic and Lutheran interpretations of communion. The two dominant Protestant views both insist that the bread and cup are not the literal body and blood of Jesus. Now this church has historically held to one of these views, that of the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli taught that communion is a symbolic memorial. We aren't actually eating Jesus' flesh or drinking his blood when we take communion. The bread symbolizes his body. The cup symbolizes his blood. We take communion to remember and proclaim Jesus' death. And yet, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Participating in communion does spiritually connect us to Jesus and to some aspect of the benefits of his death. Jesus is spiritually with us when we observe his supper. And as believers take communion, remembering what he has done for us, he strengthens our faith. But the bread is Jesus' body only in a symbolic way. It represents his body. And Jesus says more than that. He says his body has been given for you. Now, this would not have made much sense when the disciples heard Jesus say it, but they would soon understand because that night Jesus was arrested. He was put on trial several times. The next day he was mocked and brutalized and nailed to a cross. He died the death that we deserve. Galatians 3 says he became a curse for us he bore the wrath of God that we should have borne. 1 Peter 3 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus yielded his body up to brokenness and death because of our sin. He died to bring us to God. That is what the bread symbolizes. And Jesus told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. They were to repeat this breaking of bread to remember Jesus. And so Christ replaced the symbolic Passover meal with a new symbolic meal, communion, which points to Jesus' death, which the Passover anticipated. Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians, Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. Jesus was sacrificed, and his blood protects us from a greater plague than anything Egypt faced, and it delivers us from a greater slavery than Egyptian bondage. Jesus delivered us from slavery to sin. So communion is the new meal for God's people to remember God's mighty saving deeds in the past. And Jesus commands us to regularly practice communion, to remember what Jesus endured to save us. But the bread does not only point to Jesus' death. It also points to the result that comes from Jesus' death. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So when we take communion, we're not simply remembering that Jesus died for me individually. We're remembering that Jesus died for us collectively. By taking from a common loaf, communion constitutes us as one body, this verse says. It forms and reforms us as a church by reminding us who we are and where we come from. Reminding us that we are a part of this body, and it reminds us of our unity around the person and death of Jesus. And so we take the bread. Now, communion is a congregational activity. I've known Christians that try to turn it into a family event or an individual event. But in the Bible, the remembrance of Jesus' death is a corporate act for the local church. We are one body. Now, in this church, we use unleavened bread for communion because in the Bible, yeast is a symbol of sin. And the Bible teaches that Jesus is without sin. So we use the bread without yeast to, to point to the fact that Jesus' human body was sinless. But communion does not only involve eating bread. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
As the Passover meal continued, Jesus took one of the ceremonial cups of wine and again he reinterpreted its significance. This wine no longer points to Passover. It also points now to Jesus' death. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now again, this word is means represents. So the communion cup is not Jesus' blood. Rather, it is a symbol that represents the shedding of Jesus' blood and the new covenant that his blood established. What is the new covenant? Well, a covenant's a contract. It's a binding statement that explains how two parties relate to each other. And throughout the Bible, God makes covenants with various people, with Noah or Abraham or David or the whole nation of Israel. But near the end of the Old Testament, God promises that in the future, he's going to create a new, lasting, better relationship between him and his people, which he calls the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the relationship God promised Israel. This is the relationship that God has allowed the church to enjoy. If we come to Christ in repentant faith, God becomes our God and we become his people. And no matter our social status, we get direct access to God in a personal way. He remakes our hearts. He forgives our sin. This is a relationship that God has with every believer. The new covenant. And Jesus said at the Last Supper, he was beginning the new covenant. And how did he start it? Well, in the ancient world, when covenants were agreed to, often there was an animal sacrifice. In Genesis, when God covenanted with Abraham, animals were killed and cut in half. Well, what's the sacrifice that grounds and confirms the new covenant? Jesus tells us. It's a sacrifice of his own life. After all, the law says without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And the new covenant promised forgiveness of sin. So blood must be shed because the wages of sin is death. So Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice to confirm the new covenant, to bring us to God and to forgive our sins. And that's what the cup symbolizes. And again, Jesus commands that his disciples reenact this. Now, we've always used grape juice in this church instead of wine because we don't want any brothers or sisters who stumbled with alcohol in the past to, to stumble again. This is actually quite similar to what the early church did. Justin Martyr, writing about 100 years after 1 Corinthians, says that the communion wine drunk in the church in his day was cut with water and diluted. Basically, grape juice is the equi equivalent of that today. And so just like the early Christians did, we eat the bread and we drink the cup which contains grape juice. Now, verse 26, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is designed to get us to remember certain truths, that we who are many have been made one body, and that we've been brought together, that we have a new relationship with God, that we are his people, that he is our God, that we have been forgiven. And all of that is true because Jesus gave his body and blood for you and for me and for us. So Jesus says, remember these truths when you take communion. Isn't that astonishing? that God's people should have to be encouraged to remember the gospel, 
God knows how weak and forgetful we are. And that's why he's given us communion. To help keep the main thing the main thing. To keep the gospel front and center in the church. But Paul says communion does more than just remember the truths of the gospel. By taking communion, we actually proclaim these truths. Before the spiritual realm. Before the world. Before unbelievers who may be in our midst. Before each other. This is a declaration of our testimony that we are to regularly observe. How regularly? Well, Paul doesn't say. He just says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Now, many churches point to this and say, well, then we can make up our own decision about however often we want to take communion. And that's true in part. But the Bible indicates that the earliest church took communion at least once per week. Acts 2.42 tells us after Pentecost, the Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, this phrase, breaking of bread, in the New Testament sometimes just means taking a meal, and sometimes it means taking communion. But since the early church regularly ate together and took communion within the context of a shared meal, I think we should understand the breaking of bread here to refer to communion and in, 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 in likewise in any passage that talks about the gathering of the church. The breaking of bread in any passage talking about the gathering of the church should be understood as communion. And so when we look at Acts 20 verse 7, and we read that on the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread and Paul talked with them, we should understand this is a church service in Ephesus that involves preaching and taking communion. This is representative of what the early church did. The nearly universal opinion of church historians is that for the first few centuries of Christianity, Christians took communion weekly. Most of the reformers held this position as well. The move away from weekly communion in Protestant churches was primarily a reaction against Roman Catholicism. Because Catholicism said, well, you get saved by continuously eating communion. And a Protestant said, no, we want to make sure you understand communion is not ultimate. It's just a symbol. Um, and so they moved away from weekly communion. And, and that's perfectly understandable logic. Now, in this church, we've always taken communion monthly. And we made that decision not as a response to Catholicism, but in, in response to some unhealthy practices that we observed in a previous context related to communion. But when we look at today's passage, my concern is that by observing communion less frequently than the early church did, we may generate unintended consequences. Because the Bible presupposes communion should happen frequently. And it tells us communion is formative to the local church, and it is our corporate proclamation of the gospel. And those sorts of things we should be eager to maintain and celebrate regularly, just as we regularly hear God's word, and we regularly sing hymns, and we regularly pray. So while we maintain a monthly communion practice here, friends, I implore you, do not squeeze communion into the margins as something odd or irregular or forgettable. Communion is hugely important. And if we choose to take communion less frequently than weekly, we need to make extra sure that we give even more attention to practicing it properly and giving it its proper place. But regardless of the frequency of communion, what Paul says is whenever we take it, we proclaim Christ's death and its results. But Paul says one more thing here. We take communion now, but we won't take it forever. Because one day Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, we won't need symbols of his death and the relationships it produced anymore. One day we're going to see him and we will collectively dwell with him in perfect fellowship forever. And communion carries that symbolism too. So it reminds us of the past 
what Jesus did for us on the cross. It points us to the present, our relationship to God, and the fact we're part of a body. And it reminds us of the future, that Christ is coming back, and victory, and he will bring us to glory. And that's what communion is about, and what it means, and why we participate in it. This is also why only believers can take communion, because these things are only true for believers. Only believers have a relationship to Christ's death and Christ's people and hope in Christ's return. But let's come to our last point here, and this is a very important point, which is that communion is a holy and solemn event that we must practice with self-examination. Look at verse 27. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. We live in an age of irreverence and flippancy, and that has come into the church. Many Christian leaders today seem to be on a quest to make church gatherings as light, vapid, and fun as possible, and to remove all seriousness and solemnity from the worship of God. But communion is a solemn practice. Now, it's not a sad event. I've seen people really try to go out of their way to make a show of how sad they are at communion. And, and that's, that's wrong because that is an act of selfishness, of drawing attention to yourself instead of the table. Of course, it's perfectly natural to have emotions when you come to the table. But friends, this is not an exercise in who can express sorrow the most vividly. Friends, this is not simply a sad event. It is a joyous event because Christ is triumphant. Christ has redeemed us. Christ has broken the power of sin. We have victory in him. But it's a serious event. Because it reminds us of the great cost that was paid to liberate us. And Paul says, listen to this, if we participate in communion in an unworthy way, and we'll discuss that in a minute, we incur huge guilt before God. We become guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That is, we become liable for the reality that communion represents, the death of Christ. That is staggering guilt. Guilt for the greatest crime in history. When Paul says this, he is telling us in no uncertain terms, this cannot be trivialized. It is that significant. Unworthy participation in communion makes someone guilty of the death of Jesus. Now certainly we don't want to incur that kind of guilt. And thankfully Paul tells us how to avoid it. Verse 28, he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is a famous verse. Unfortunately, it's often taken out of context, which leads to a lot of confusion. Without its context, people read that they're supposed to examine themselves, and then we try to figure out what we're supposed to examine ourselves for. And the answer we often gravitate to is simply sin. So I've known Christians who are terrified to take communion because they have sinned during the few days before they take communion. They seem to think that communion requires a recent sinlessness and they worry that recent sins make them liable to the guilt Paul describes here. And so their self-examination is just, am I living relatively sinlessly enough right now to take communion? But friends, Jesus died because none of us are worthy or good enough for any relationship with God. And the new covenant promises that God will forgive his people's sin. So to require sinless perfection for communion is to deny the very truth that communion illustrates. I would say the self-examination Paul describes here is not just an examination into whether we have recently sinned. I can assure you, friends, we all have. Now, does that mean that sin is irrelevant to whether we should participate? No, but I would ask you this. 
What is your posture towards your sin? Have you confessed it to God and turned away from it? If so, take communion joyfully. But if you are defiant towards God in hard-hearted, unrepentant rebellion, then taking communion is an act in opposition to the truth of the new covenant. That God is our God and we are His people. That He has the right to rule over us. And we have the obligation to obey Him. A hard-hearted attitude of unrepentance should keep us from taking communion. But again, I think the issue of generic sin is not really the main issue Paul's addressing here when he speaks of self-examination. We know that from the context of the passage and what Paul says next. Verse 29, he says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay, so Paul says if we take communion unworthily, we're massively guilty before God, and we eat and drink judgment on ourselves, but he presents an alternative. In verse 28, he calls the alternative self-examination. In verse 29, he calls it discerning the body. What does he mean? What is discerning the body? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul uses the word body to refer to two concepts. On one hand, communion points to the human body of Jesus that died for us. And on the other hand, it points to the body of the local church, which has been formed by Jesus' death. And in our passage, the Corinthians have failed to discern the body in two ways. In both ways. They have failed to respect communion as a solemn memorial of Christ's body and blood. Because the rich Corinthians are gorging themselves and getting drunk. They're treating the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for selfish indulgence. And in so doing, they're trampling the body of Christ which was slain for them. But they also disrespected the body of Christ as a local church. Because Paul said their worldly selfish conduct despised the church of God and humiliated their brothers and sisters who were poor. And in so doing, they're acting against the new covenant, which promised equality before God for all people, from the greatest to the least, Jeremiah said. Instead, they have denied the unity and equality of the body by importing worldly prejudices and socioeconomic distinctions into the church. And so they also have failed to discern the body. Now then, this helps us understand what Paul means when he tells us to examine ourselves. We don't want to fail to discern the body in either of these ways and become culpable for the death of Jesus. And so we need to ask ourselves as we take communion, do we understand that this is a solemn memorial of Jesus' death? Or is this just some odd ceremony that we go through the motions of periodically? Do we recognize our place in this story, who I was and what it took for Jesus to save me? Do we recognize our part in the local church I'm a member of this body and that we all have a common participation in Christ. Are we guilty of selfishness, of self-assertion, of exploiting the church without giving back to it? Are we guilty of acts that are contrary to the unity of the body? Do we have interpersonal conflict with someone else here? Have we imported the values and attitudes of the unbelieving world into the church and in how we look at our fellow members? Do we look down on them? Because, well, you know, you're not the same social class as I am. Or, I don't like your race. Or, I don't like that you primarily don't speak English. Or, their job. Or, their education. Or, something in their background. Or, something about their politics. Or, some other worldly category. That cannot come into the church. Do we recognize that that communion symbolizes Christ's death for us and our oneness as a body? That's the issue. 
We need to discern the body individually, and our church also needs to discern the body corporately. Now, that's not something individual members have to worry about, but that is the responsibility of the elders. We must protect the Lord's table by restricting access to it only to believers who can truly be said to be part of the visible body of Christ. Now, we practice open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion with us. But the elders of this church do instruct that you should only participate in communion with us if you've been baptized, because that is the visible sign of your entry into the body of Christ. Moreover, we instruct that you should not participate in communion if you are currently excommunicated from your home church, because that discipline is an act that removes you from the visible body. Moreover, Paul warns the Corinthians that when it interacts with a person who's excommunicated, that it is not even to eat with such a one, according to 1 Corinthians 5. If you have questions about either of these instructions, please talk to the elders after this service. But corporately and individually, we must discern the body. And this is where the Corinthians failed, and so they ate and drank judgment on themselves. Verse 30, Paul says, This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's how seriously God takes communion. A number of the Corinthians were guilty of not discerning the body, so God killed them. Or he gave others of them illness. God is not messing around with this. Because this is the holy and solemn remembrance of his beloved son's death. Now you might say, well that's really harsh. But actually it isn't. Because look at what Paul says in verse 32. God imposed this judgment of illness and death on the Corinthians for their own good. Because some of them were courting eternal condemnation. Some of them didn't really belong to Jesus. Remember earlier? Paul said that sometimes divisions reveal who is genuine and who isn't. The Corinthian sin was one of those issues. And it showed that some of them were in danger of being condemned with the world. And so God, in his kindness, instead judged them now in this life. He afflicted them to compel them to repent and come to Christ so that they would not be eternally condemned. But look at verse 31. Paul says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Friends, God's Discipline comes from his kind intention towards us, but it's not pleasant to experience. And Paul says, if you don't want to experience discipline, then address your own sin. Where you see sin in yourself, where you see that you have failed to discern the body, where you have undermined the unity of the church, or looked down on your fellow believers through the wisdom of the world, confess this sin to God and turn away from it before you participate in the table. If you need to address sin or interpersonal conflict with a brother or sister in the Lord, do it before you come to the table. This is why we always practice time for self-examination before we take communion. If you need to address something with God, do it. If you've got to talk to a brother or sister here, go outside and handle whatever you need to handle. You might say, well, that's embarrassing. Okay, but what's better, dealing with that in obedience to Christ or coming under judgment? Deal with what you need to deal with, friends, and we'll be happy to give you a communion afterwards. But friends, when we identify, denounce, and forsake our own sin before the Lord, and when we resolve our interpersonal problems before we take communion, God will not need to bring discipline upon us. So friends, let us examine ourselves, and where we find that we have business that we need to do, let us do it. It's a lot better for us to judge our own sin than for God to judge it in us. 
Paul then gives one last instruction, verse 33. He says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul says, there's other issues that I've got to talk to you guys about concerning communion. I'll deal with them later. But until then, Paul says, there's one more thing I want you guys to know. You've got to make sure your conduct at communion reflects the unity of the church. So instead of the rich coming early and gorging themselves and the poor coming late and getting nothing, Paul says, wait to eat as one body. That's why when we pass the communion elements around, we've always asked people to refrain from taking them until everyone has been served because we want to give effect to this instruction. But Paul says, hey, rich Corinthians, if you're just that hungry that when you get to church you just can't wait, then eat before you come. And the point is this. Friends, we've got to do whatever it takes to ensure that our conduct does not undermine the visible unity and equality of the church. All believers stand equal at the foot of the cross because we're all condemned sinners who sought mercy and found it because of the grace of God. And we are all headed for the same destiny, eternal life in the new creation. The distinctions that separate us in our society are transitory and worldly. They have no place in the church. Brothers and sisters, we need to do whatever it takes to leave the divisions of the world in the world and not let them be part of our lives or this church because we are one body constituted and redeemed by the death of Jesus. So communion is a solemn but joyful memorial in which we proclaim our testimony. In the past, Jesus gave his body and blood for us. So in the present, we have a relationship with God and one another. And one day we will dwell with him and with all believers in the new creation in unending glory. So what we're going to do is we're going to sing together now. And then we're going to examine ourselves and let us do that seriously. Let us address what we must address. And then in faith and with joy, let us take communion. Remembering that Jesus has died to make us his people and let us participate in the bread and the cup.